0: Yes, that is what we need right now in the program. The good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for creative marketing when it was revealed that the Reverend Sarah Yetman, the vicar of St. Michael's, a 150-year-old Anglican church in England, changed the church's name to St. Mike's. And she added a coffee bar. (laughs) Yetman explained, we aim to reach out to more young people. And, And why not? After a long period of tedious praying, wouldn't you want to perk back up again with an espresso? On the other hand, we think it was a bad week for Singaporeans because authorities there are now testing out mobile anti-crime surveillance robots to patrol the streets. Resident Franny Teo was quoted as saying, it brings to mind a dystopian world of robots. And it was an ugly week, we'd have to say, a couple weeks back for America's sad judicial system, with the news that a federal judge earlier in the month approved the unconditional release next June of John Hinckley Jr., coming 41 years after he shot Ronald Reagan and three others outside a Washington, D.C. hotel. Now, back in 2016, Hinckley did get released from a D.C. psychiatric hospital. He was released to live with his mother under numerous restrictions after doctors found he no longer posed a risk to himself or others. Here's the part I like best. District Judge Paul Friedman said, if he hadn't tried to kill the president, he would have been unconditionally released a long, long time ago. I guess the moral of the story is if you shoot somebody and hope to get out in a reasonably short period of time out of prison, you don't shoot the president. That just gums up the works. And in another news regarding the assassination or attempted assassination of political figures, apparently Sirhan Sirhan is still awaiting a judgment from the governor on whether he might be released finally. Robert Kennedy Jr. apparently accepts the notion that Sirhan wasn't the real shooter. I presume by that he means the shooter that delivered the fatal shot to his father. In that, we would agree with him. Since the coroner, Thomas Noguchi, who performed the autopsy on the late senator, demonstrated the fatal shot was fired about an inch and a half behind and to the right of Bobby Kennedy... Sirhan Sirhan's gun never got within two feet of him. If you're listening to this program back in 2003, you heard about our trip down to Los Angeles for a conference that was taking place regarding the assassination of, of Robert Kennedy. Mr. Millen and I and researcher Lisa Pease tried to get into the Ambassador Hotel, which still stood at that time. And we made it in, but we not able to uh, get past security to check out the pantry area where the crime took place. Uh, we remain absolutely convinced that uh, Sirhan could not have fired the fatal shot. Like, that's not, that's not our conclusion. That's the coroner's conclusion. But as to what Sirhan's role was in all of this, wow, uh, we're not going to go into that today, but we refer you back to our interview with Sirhan's one-time lawyer, Lawrence Teeter, be found on our archives. Researchers I know of directed me to a video wherein Sirhan is making statements that make it pretty clear, at least when the camera was in front of him, that he was taking credit for shooting Bobby Kennedy. And he even offered a reason for why he had done so. It remains possible, however, that he was taking that approach because he thought that might be the fastest way to get out of prison. Anyway, we're definitely not going to get into that today. And maybe I shouldn't have brought it up. But it does offer us the opportunity to point out that as far as we know, to date, O.J. Simpson has not volunteered to assist in the process of finding the real killer. And in other assassination-related news, it turns out the Biden administration decided recently that, well, thanks to COVID-19, they were not going to release JFK records that have been, we suppose, slated to be released. It's, it's hard to say. The Assassination Records Review Board, which was tasked in the 1990s with um Seeing to it that records related to the murder of the president would be released, let's just say there's been a spotty success record in that endeavor ever since. Yes, some very interesting things have been released, but a lot of even more interesting things that we'd like to know about remain sequestered away. We're very disappointed that the Biden administration isn't isn't stepping forward to um, do its duty in this regard. Although it's been pretty clear in recent records releases that they're just, they're passing out junk. We had Jefferson Morley on this program some years ago, who actually, as a journalist, sued the Central Intelligence Agency to obtain some curious records that they still have locked away. Morley did not prevail in the courts, but uh, we would agree that the things he would like to see released definitely should be released. For more details on that, we would again send you back to our archives to um, check out our interview with Jefferson Morley. For a democratic society to have any chance of working properly, it, uh, the public needs good data. By the way, in regards to that, in regards to our conversation in the last segment about um, the hedge fund known as Alden Global Capital, the a poll by the Gallup Organization recently shows the following. 36% of American adults say they have a great deal or a fair amount of trust in newspapers, television, and radio news. 34% said they have none at all, and it seems to us that that 34% seems to be passing around uh, information promoted by QAnon and other sources, which we think it's fair to say are somewhat less reliable than what you might find in the typical newspaper, television, or radio news. And kind of in the same vein, I've been sitting on an editorial which came out last Memorial Day. This might be the time to make reference to it. It was written by David Morrill. He served in Vietnam as a First Lieutenant U.S. Army Intelligence. According to his piece, before going to Vietnam, he was also a graduate student in public and international affairs at Princeton University. His student deferment ended and he heard from his draft board. After training at the intelligence school, and infantry school, he was ordered to Vietnam. Given his education and background, he was assigned to the intelligence section of the U.S. headquarters in Saigon called, I'm not sure it's called MACV or MACV. I'll call it MACV. Said Morrill, I was certainly the most junior officer there, but my position came with high level access. The lies I witnessed were jarring and unceasing, a daily part of the routine. My work at headquarters allowed me to read memos from the field intended for General William Westmoreland, commander of the American forces in Vietnam, and other top-level officials. Invariably, these reports stated, quote, We're winning the war in Province X, unquote. While a few challenges were noted, the tone was always upbeat, quote, Light at the end of the tunnel, unquote. Meeting in person with the officers who wrote these memos, however, painted a completely different picture. The Viet Cong are kicking our ass in my area. Hamlets deemed secure here are not secure. My local counterparts are corrupt. When I asked about these discrepancies, I always received some version of the same excuse in response. When you're looking at four stars on each lapel, you tell him what he wants to hear. These officers had been selected to accomplish miracles in Vietnam, but they were failing. Rather than risk their careers, they lied. I watched lies pervade the thinking of our top decision makers as well. In 1965, the Pentagon commissioned the RAND Corporation to analyze why the Viet Cong and its armed adherents fought with such ferocity, even without modern weapons, while our Vietnamese Army allies did not. I was responsible for arranging a senior briefing in Westmoreland's conference room for a presentation of this Viet Cong motivation morale study. It was a remarkable event. I watched the RAND team bluntly summarize their findings to the commanding staff. Leaders were told in no uncertain terms about how the Viet Cong fought for a cause. They represented the will of the people, fighting to liberate their country from the puppet regime and its American backers. Stunned silence and cold, hard stares from the generals and colonels filled the room. The truth was not something these men were accustomed to encountering. So they ignored it. The RAND study's conclusions were later buried both by military headquarters in Saigon and by the Secretary of Defense in the Pentagon and by the National Security Council in the White House. Its facts did not fit preconceived notions or political agendas. Although we would note that in 1970, another RAND Corporation analyst, Daniel Ellsberg, snuck. Out of the Rand Corporation, a secret study, I don't think it's the same exact secret study of the Vietnam War and its origins, and leaked them to the press, at which point the public became aware, well, the public became, I think, fully aware for the first time that we had been lied to for years. Said David Morrill, in Vietnam, just like now, there is only one antidote, truth. The Pentagon Papers shed light directly on the lies in Vietnam and helped extricate the U.S. from the war. The same need to fight for truth has arisen again. America needs a nonpartisan commission that can honestly investigate the Capitol riots of January 6th. Too many Americans and too many of our government refuse to move forward, refuse to let go of the big lie. Perhaps most embarrassing of all is the sight of more than 120 retired generals and admirals throwing their weight behind this deceit. These actions threaten our democracy. He concluded by saying in our military and in our politics on Memorial Day and every day, relentlessly pursuing truth is the best way this country can honor its veterans. And once again, dear listeners, I'm afraid I must apologize for the fact that we have not yet secured Daniel Ellsberg for this program, although he told us on more than one occasion he would do so. But doggone it, he's a very busy guy. But you may take solace in the fact that I have made arrangements that in the event that I never do secure Daniel Ellsberg... Ms. Merlin stands ready to kick me in the ass. Yes, and for those mystified by that remarks, uh, you, you evidently have never seen This is Spinal Tap, and you need to correct that. I do hope the phrase, the big lie, gets uh, repurposed for this, uh, this talk of uh, the election theft of 2020, supposed election theft. Jonathan Chait, writing in nymag.com, said anybody fighting Joe Biden is helping Trump's next coup. Chait said with Trump firing up a 2024 campaign as his party's clear frontrunner, Republicans in both Congress and state houses have signed on to his anti-democracy agenda, echoing or indulging the big lie about the 2020 election and paving the way for a successful and catastrophic theft of the 2024 election. Next time newly installed Trump election officials and or GOP state legislators may do what Trump asked last time, throw out Democratic votes from big cities as inherently fraudulent and declare Trump the winner. Said Chate, Trump's Republican Party is no longer a normal political party. It's an authoritarian project. Trump and his admirers have openly followed the playbook of Viktor Orban, the Hungarian strongman who has conducted a clinic in democratic erosion. Countering this viewpoint was Ramesh Ponaru in Bloomberg.com, who said that Vice President Mike Pence, GOP state election officials, and the courts all rejected Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election. The U.S. election system performed well, he said, and it will again if tested. Max Boot writing in WashingtonPost.com said it would be foolish to count on that. As a former Republican, I have no faith that we will remain a democracy if Republicans win power. When the Senate Judiciary Committee revealed new details of how Trump repeatedly pressured Justice Department officials to declare the election fraudulent, GOP senators insisted that Trump was just ensuring that Americans would have confidence in the results. Let us hope they do something about January 6th. Because, as Susan Glasser pointed out in The New Yorker, Trump's grip on his party stronger than ever and officials who found January 6th horrifying are now jumping on the Trump train. January 6th now looks like the beginning of something even worse. Now, there is talk in the present time of shaking up the power elite in this country. And one way to do that would be to tax America's uber-wealthy. Writing about this earlier this month, The Economist said, the last time Congress passed a significant tax increase, Seinfeld won an Emmy, Nirvana unplugged their guitars for MTV, and lawmakers were pondering whether to vote for NAFTA. Early in Bill Clinton's presidency in 1993, Congress raised personal and corporate income taxes. Since then, almost every tax bill in Washington has lowered them. In aggregate, America is now among the most lightly taxed countries in the developed world. Its overall tax-to-GDP ratio was 24.5%, nine percentage points below the average in the OECD, a group of mostly rich countries. Under their headline, or from whatever source derived, the Economist put a sub-headline, new taxes will hit America's rich. Old loopholes will protect them. And predictably, people like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, confronted with the possibility of tax raises, have called the proposals an existential threat to American prosperity. And that issue we talked about a couple shows ago, about how the U.S. government uh, seems to be unable to curb spending, while it has reduced tax revenues means that we keep borrowing the difference. The national debt to go up, which is something that is not sustainable forever. There was a time, and I say this as a a recovering Republican, when the Republican Party actually had people in it that were not right-wing cranks. Well, correction, I have some Republican friends. Not everybody's a right-wing crank, but the leadership is. Or has become so. And I say this speaking for a program that put Barry Goldwater's granddaughter on this show some years back to talk about her intriguing documentary about grandpa. There was a time when Republicans railed against the tax and spend Democrats and claimed that the Democrats were going to spend us into oblivion. But now it seems like it's the Republicans that like to spend us into oblivion. I think the only two presidents of the past 30 years that produced a balanced budget were Obama and Clinton. And I think I think that involved a lot of uh, accounting sleight of hand. Nevertheless, they were not borrowing the huge sums that Republicans get away with. Because every time the Democrats try it, the Republicans squawk. It's just that when they have their, you know, hand in the till, they seem to get surprisingly quiet. And it would be one thing if these... Uh, these borrowings were being done to improve the lot of most people in this country, but the truth is, they are not. This reminds me of the, uh, the saying that Milton Friedman, the economist, was so fond of, wherein he made reference to the golden rule. The golden rule he was referring to was the fact that the people that have the gold make the rules. So it was back, and I think it was 2003, that uh, the people with the gold decided they were going to give the nation legislation, on drug pricing. You would imagine that such legislation might be produced in order to benefit John Q. citizen, but why would you be wrong if you made that assumption? The rules were constructed to protect big pharma. There was a huge outcry at the time. We took part in that outcry, and all these many years later, people are trying to do something about it. I have in my hand the, uh, the business section of the East Bay Times. It's a reprint of a wire service story titled ban on negotiating medicare drug prices under pressure they're talking about how as drug prices climb into the stratosphere there's some effort to maybe rein them in a bit and no we're not talking about communism here we're talking about just you know taking some of the more outrageous prices and and and, and seeing what you can to negotiate over them they're trying to do this right now president biden is as a health care agenda of which this is a part of the article points out, the article by Richard Alonzo Zaldivar, and points out that to do this, Congress is going to have to change an unusual arrangement written into law. When lawmakers created Medicare's Part D outpatient prescription drug program in 2003, they barred Medicare from negotiating prices. Republicans who controlled Congress at the time wanted insurers that administered drug plans to do the haggling. Medicare got sidelined despite decades of experience setting prices for hospitals, doctors, and nursing homes. Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, said, I don't know of any other situation where the government has one hand tied behind its back when dealing with people like Big Pharma. Wyden is leading efforts to draft the Democratic plan in the Senate. It's known as the Non-Interference Clause. The ban has been unbendable, and that's the way the pharmaceutical industry wants to keep it. Former Medicare Administrator Andy Slavitt recalls proposing a modest experiment on pricing. He said, You would have thought we'd press the nuclear button and the country was going to blow up. Drugs costing tens of thousands of dollars a month were rare when the prescription benefit was enacted nearly 20 years ago. Now they've become more common, and Democrats want to allow Medicare to negotiate over high-cost brand-name drugs with little or no competition as well as insolence. It should be noted that politicians as varied as former President Donald Trump and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have supported Medicare negotiations. It's up to Biden now to see what he can do about it. And here's an item in a similar vein that I think you'll be tickled by. Back in 2005, the state of California sent notes out to tens of thousands of Californians regarding their paying of taxes. The state proposed that what were mostly modest income taxpayers, skipped the aggravations of hunting for W-2s, hassling with tax software, dealing with lost evenings and weekends, completing returns. Instead, the state of California might do it for them. Californians participating in what was a test run of a return-free tax system, which is a goal tax reformers have been chasing since President Reagan proposed to the nation in 1985, were so impressed The thousands of comments poured into a survey, bringing tears of joy to Joe Bankman, the Stanford law professor who guided the state's effort, which was branded Ready Return. I'm reading from an article in the LA Times, by the way. Yet, not everyone was thankful. Taxed software firms faced an existential threat if the federal government were to follow California's lead. Over the next decade and a half, they worked relentlessly and successfully to stymie the California project and prevent others like it. They persuaded the Internal Revenue Service for more than a decade to pledge in writing not to adopt California's innovation or develop any other offering that threatened their business model. Yes, tax software firms. Big tech in action again. Senator Elizabeth Warren posed the question, can you imagine... Whose side are you on? This is the kind of problem we face in Washington over and over. A small number of well-funded corporations can keep Washington from doing the right thing, even when millions of people are hurt. Yes, these companies persuaded the IRS to let them provide the government's congressionally mandated free election filing service meant for most Americans, which was branded free file. And now they stand accused of using that authority to swindle taxpayers by obscuring the free file offerings online, and luring customers to other products marketed as free, but which often include steep fees. Anyway, California's blueprint for ending the nightmare of tax filing for millions is getting another look at the national level. This follows years in which a coalition of software firms led by Silicon Valley-based Intuit, the makers of TurboTax, a colossus that boasts 73% of the market share for tax preparation services, fought against California's plan to follow the lead of countries like Germany and Japan. In those places, tax day is a non-event. Citizens may get a pre-filled return that has all the salary, investment, and other information the government already has in its files. William Gale, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, says there are about 30 countries that do this for a big chunk of their populations. I would have thought we would be further along by now. But, of course, the tax preparation industry guided Washington down a different path. This has ultimately led to the FTC and multiple state attorneys general girdling, girding to sue Intuit, alleging consumers eligible for, to file for free were lured into paying steep fees. This is according to filings at the Federal Trade Commission and Intuit corporate disclosures. Remember back in the 80s when Ronald Reagan would wistfully look into the camera and say, wouldn't it be great if people could just, you know, take out and take a one-page form and fill out their taxes and send it in. We agree, for for most people, that that would be great. Why don't we try it? It should be noted, the government had an idea to create a program that would aid more than 100 million lower-income taxpayers. But under the arrangement, by 2019, only 2.5 million were filing for free under this arrangement. Millions more were paying unnecessary fees, according to investigations. Here's the part of the article I like the very best. The companies deny wrongdoing. The agreement they struck with the IRS did not necessarily prohibit them from steering eligible taxpayers away from the free file program, according to an independent review commissioned by the tax agency. I love this. You know, we weren't weren't necessarily prohibited from doing this. Here's another piece of the article I like. A new Intuit funded report released by the technology industry group TechNet, argues that the cost and technological requirements are insurmountable. Taxpayers aren't all that interested, by the way, and the IRS could use a return-free system to steer taxpayers toward paying more than they owe. And apparently a lot of people that may may try this system, they may wind up with erectile dysfunction. Uh, That part I'm making up. Peace also notes that two of the biggest benefactors of, of the largesse of TurboTax are... U.S. Representatives Anna Eshoo and Zoe Lofgren, former of Menlo Park, the latter of San Jose, both Democrats. Taking a look at all this, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's administrative budget chief, Tom Campbell, former GOP congressman, I think had a chance to speak with budget chief Campbell at one point. Anyway, he said in LA Times op-ed this year that in his lifetime in government, He's never seen a clearer case of lobbying power putting private interests first over public benefit. Anyway, it's hard to imagine a a, a simpler idea that would benefit the public more clearly than this one. And I don't know, maybe we should reach out to Joe Bankman, Stanford law professor, and see if we can bring him on to to beat the drum for this. And maybe some turbocharged investigative journalists can find out just who it was in the IRS that kind of went along with this sandbagging of what's a good idea. You can bet your ass if an article like that emerges, we'll we'll put that guy on, or or gal as the case may be. And in a possibly somewhat related story, we have this from the New York Times, Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat who chairs the Senate Energy Committee and is shaping President Biden's climate legislation, Owns stock valued at between $1 and $5 million in a coal brokerage firm that he founded in 1988. Last year, the senator made $492,000 in dividends from his stock in Inner Systems. Something tells me he's going to go light in the coal industry. It's just a feeling I have. And yes, Mr. Miller, it does seem like a conflict of interest to me. And our final controversy of the day is who broke the Beatles up? Paul McCartney has come forward to set the record straight on who broke up the Beatles back in 1970, saying it was John Lennon's idea. McCartney has long been blamed for instigating the split by bringing in lawyers to handle the band's disputes. He has rejected that assertion in a BBC Radio 4 interview saying, John walked into a room one day and said, I'm leaving the Beatles. Is that instigating the split or not? McCartney, age 79, says that because he was the first to announce the band was coming to an end, I was fed up of hiding it, he said. People believed it was his decision. No, no, no. This was my life, so I wanted to continue. The split became inevitable, McCartney said, because the rebellious Lenin had bonded intensely with his wife, Yoko Ono, and wanted, quote, to lie in bed for a week in Amsterdam for peace. And you couldn't argue with that, end quote. So you make the call. McCartney or Lenin? Or Yoko That really does it for today's show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. And I'll probably put more high school stories in then because I know you're you're keen to hear more of those. We'll see you.